Welcome to TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast where several hosts talk about what they find interesting in tech this week. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh43. All four hosts are here this week. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, thought-provoking entertainment online weekly since 1994. I'm Kevin Savitz, and I didn't know I was next, but I am. And uh, I am founder of freeprintable.net, which lets you print things out for free, ink not included. I'm Leo Notenboom, <laughs> lover of coffee, corgis, and computers. Not always in that order. Today, coffee came first. And of course, the Leo behind askleo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig, and I host uh, the videos at macmost.com, where I teach you about Macs and stuff. And I also make mobile games. And my website is clevermedia.com. Well, before we get to what we did this week, uh, just a quick announcement that next week we're going to run a day late. And Kevin, what? A dollar short. Very good. So, uh, but we'll have something special next week. There's a reason we're going to be delayed. Do I get a present? Am I getting a present? <laughs> yes. Yes, you are. Hey. <laughs> so as far as what I did this week, I relaunched my own podcast. It's, it's a recorded show that uh, is not semi-live like this one. And uh, it's the same, the same, it. same iTunes feed and everything? Just, yes, it is. So, okay, you just oh, cleared out the, the episodes. And, okay, good. So good. I, I actually cleared now? out the old episodes. I'm sorry, Kevin, what did you say? What, you, what are you doing differently, differently now? Well, as Kit says, I fired her as, a, as my co-host, <laughs> which, you know, is a great thing to do to your wife. Right. But um, we were having a difficult time scheduling it and getting together. And so I've actually refocused it a little bit to talk about, to talk more about what on Uncommon Sense is, which after all is the title of the show. So mm. that's what we're doing differently or what I'm doing differently. Cool. Nice. Kevin? I had a kind of busy week. Uh, I launched a new site today um, in the freeprintable.net network. It is rejection letter templates at rejectionletters.net. Was that in time for Randy to use it to reject his wife? (laughs) I don't have a rejection of wife letter template yet, but I'll see (laughs) what I can do with that. Um, Yikes. (laughs) On second thought, uh, yeah. So a bunch of uh, there's uh, right now twenty uh, rejection letter templates, and, and there'll be twenty more in a couple of weeks. Um, uh, rejection letters for job applications and tenants and uh, uh, grant funding, and even for dating apps and things like that. So, oh, uh, grant funding! Oh, that's cold. Yeah, Ooh. yeah. Well, better to get a rejection letter than no answer at all, which a lot of people who you know apply for jobs true. and grants get. So. Yeah, so that's exciting. Always, it's uh, always exciting to put another site out there. I think it's my 102nd site in the free printable network. So um, that's always cool. And uh, I finished a book and started another one in, in the nerdy uh, section of the you library. More books? I finished reading books. Oh. <laughs> um, Never mind. Uh, yeah, I read uh, uh, Longitude, the true story of a lone genius who solved the greatest scientific problem of his time, which was a fascinating and short book about a guy named Harrison who made a, a, a clock, basically the perfect clock that would run on a boat, even you know, even the, if the and boat be is accurate and yeah. be accurate. Yeah, yeah. Um, even if the boat is is swaying, you know, back and forth on high waves for six weeks at a time. And uh, he made he made a clock so that uh, and if you know the time, you can figure out your longitude. So um, really you know, ingenious thing. I mean, I, I haven't read the book, but I've seen the, um, some documentary type stuff on that. It's just fascinating. It, it was a fascinating book, and oh, this—he got screwed. He got screwed so hard in so many different ways. It just the, the, this board of longitude, which was in charge of deciding like what uh, was an accurate way of finding longitude. Basically, it was made up of people who believed that the only true way to do it would be looking at the stars and figuring out how far the moon was, and it was just filled with with uh, astronomers, and they just did not think that having a, a device, a gadget could possibly 
be more accurate than the stars. So yeah, anyway, it was a fascinating book, short read. I uh, recommend it. And I finished that, and then I started out a uh, book by uh, Ted Koppel. I'm about halfway done with it right now. Uh, it's called Lights Out, and it is uh, about how how very, very vulnerable America's uh, electrical power grid is. Um, yeah. Uh, and, I mean, if and when it is hacked, it will be the, the breach of the millennium. Um, it, <laughs> um, uh, it's... It, it's oh man it, this book is just like well it's scary stuff and uh basically if the united states power grid were attacked uh and brought down in, intentionally uh which it probably can be um it would bring the power in the nation down from anywhere between a month and two years and if it was down from two years it's estimated that uh, 90 percent of the population would be dead at the end of the time this is from starvation, if nothing from else. Starvation and from from health issues, lack of water, mm-hmm. lack of water, viruses, just everything. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Fun. Yeah, it's a fun <laughs> book. Great read. Yeah. Yeah, Thanks, so Ted. Like- <laughs> Thanks for that cheery intro or uh, segue. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, what about you, Leo? Well, <laughs> yeah, Leo. What about you? <laughs> I went camping, yeah. I went camping, yay. <laughs> Did you have um, a generator? Uh, I actually didn't. <laughs> How many corgis would die if the power went out for two years? That's oh, many. Oh. Oh. Well, something needs to be done. Exactly. Hey, well, they'd have lots of bodies to, to eat. So they'd have lots have. of food, but nobody to feed them. And I'm not sure they could feed them <laughs> on their own. Anyway, yes, we went camping last week. Uh, I did not... Uh, dive into any kind of depressing reading. Uh, took lots of uh, pictures of the dogs and pictures of the venue and uh, played with the dogs and just had a, a nice relaxing time away from it. Um, I actually am uh, posting a link to uh, to some of the pictures that I took in uh, the newsletter that comes out tomorrow. Probably by the time you hear this, the newsletter will have come out. Uh, and we'll go ahead and include a link to that in the show notes as well. But it was fun. Good time. Cool. Gary? Yeah, so uh, I got a, a book and a TV show to talk about. I, I've read a book this last week called Head On, and it's by a sci-fi author named uh, John Scalzi. He's written a lot of great books. Um, and the it's book two of a series called Lock-In, which uh, has an interesting premise of a world kind of similar to today, but there was a plague of sorts that left a chunk of the population, like maybe 10% or something, I forget how much exactly, um, locked in, like completely paralyzed. You know, their minds are still there, but they have no way of, of communicating with the outside world. And the solution was a combination of brain implants so that they could communicate um, and robots. So androids created that they could control. So they, the person in this world or you know the, the people that were locked in in this world you know again most people are normal but these people um they would lie in a, a bed hospital bed the rest of their lives but they would have a, an android that would walk around and they would see through their eyes and speak through the mouth and all of that and live somewhat normal lives but different lives than the rest of us and it centers on a, it's a, their detective stories the two books because the, the main character is one of these people who's locked in um, and uh, he's an FBI agent. So he goes around with his normal partner and they, uh, you know, do FBI, you know, solving cases and stuff. Uh, but uh, he, he is a robot body and it's an interesting story. Besides that, everything is like normal in the world. It's, you know, pretty normal, you know, in the U S takes place, in Washington, DC, that kind of thing. Really cool books. And they're short reads. I definitely recommend the, the you know read the first one first, even though they are standalone stories. But the characters are introduced in the first one. It's it's a good good series. Lots of cool talk about tech in there about how they do these brain implants and how they made the the you know these android bodies that and then walk around and the implications that it has. Like for instance, being an FBI agent that could decide they want to jump in front of a car to stop a suspect getting away, knowing that the android body will be destroyed 
but it doesn't matter because it doesn't really affect you. You're somewhere else in a hospital bed controlling the Android from the inter- you know, over the internet. So um, uh, some interesting stuff in there. Good stuff. Um, the other thing is I binge watched a TV series called Maniac. And I know, Leo, you said you had tried it. Uh, Randy, Kevin, you guys heard of the show Maniac? I believe I've heard of it, but I have not I've seen yet. it. Yeah, just heard of it. It's, that's about it. It's Netflix, 10 episode. It looked probably just a you know miniseries, basically. And it's a cool sci-fi, uh, well, not really sci-fi. It, it's a dark, dark, dark comedy. And um, I described it to somebody as a combination of Terry Gilliam, David Lynch, and Philip K. Dick. <laughs> it's got just a bizarre present day with computer technology that looks like it's from the 70s, except in some places where there's like artificial intelligence and stuff. And just re- it like almost a complete lack of personal electronics. It was really interesting. Must be nice. It's just a budget. No, it's actually, it's like a, almost dystopian. It's uh, mm-hmm. like one of the, so without internet advertising, the, <laughs> one of the, the ways advertising is involved is you could get something called an ad buddy. So if you needed money, you could, I could suppose, place a phone call <laughs> and somebody would show up with a briefcase full of advertisements and they would follow you around and read you these ads and show you pictures. <laughs> and, and as they're doing that, they'll pay for stuff. So you could be at a coffee shop and say, oh, I'll pay for this with an ad buddy. And somebody would show up and sit down while you're drinking your cup of coffee and then read you advertisements. And then they would pay for your cup of coffee and you could be on your way. <laughs> you know, so that's just like, it's just a weird. It reminds just, me of Stranger in a Strange Land where, you know, the, they're doing a, a live news report and then the, the reporter turns and does a quick commercial and then they go back to the interview. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I, it, it's, it's very bizarre. Like they have the cars and everything look normal and the people walk around like normal, but then it, you see a little robot that wanders around the streets and can talk to you and its job is to pick up dog waste. And it's like the size of like a bread box, like on the sidewalk. You I know, want just, one of those. Yeah. Like I, want, I want about three of those. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a lot of, a lot of weird humor. And it also has a, it's just a weird, like, um, like it takes place, I think, in New York. But there's a lot of Japanese culture in it. Again, coming from a kind of a 70s view of what the future would be like. If you remember, a lot of 70s movies and sci-fi envisioned like Japanese culture really coming into the United States because that was like the big country that was like doing things, you know, electronics and advancements and they made all the cars and all the stuff, you know, and then you'd be, you know, so you think oh, in the future, like you're going to need to know Japanese and the, these Japanese corporations are going to be, you know, big players and all. And it, of course didn't quite pan out that way. Japan had their own recession, but the, um, this show has that as part of it. So it's just bizarre. I don't, I don't even know where they came up from this. Really cool stuff. Um, a lot of cool sci-fi stuff in there. Uh, I mean, well, you know, technology. I may have to give it another shot. My, uh, what I was telling Gary earlier was that uh, my wife and I, I don't think we even made it through the first episode. It just didn't, didn't make the bar for us. Yeah. Yeah, no, I loved it. So anyway, that's what, I, that's what I did besides my normal work. So this week we have... A breach of the week. Breach yeah. of the week. And I think probably one this time that everybody may have heard of. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a big one. 50 big. million plus Facebook accounts have been hacked. Now, I will admit I am not particularly deep on this one, but I think a couple of you guys are. Um, what, what's going on? So there was a function in Facebook where you could become someone else and see what they saw. Sort of. Like if you wanted to block somebody, you could become them, become them and see what they could see of your own page. But there were some security holes in that. And eventually, whatever these hackers were, were able to get the access token of that user, which is a big disaster because do you log into any other site using your Facebook credentials? That involves the access token. So if somebody can figure out you're doing something on website XYZ and using Facebook to log in, they can log in as you. And that's why it's kind of a 
of a disaster. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> makes it, it made, but what made Facebook, not only Facebook uh, uh, insecure, and I think they, they logged everyone out, or at least millions and millions of people. Right. Yeah, also, if you log into, like I log into Goodreads through Facebook, um, and those sites were compromised as well. So, you know, I don't care if anyone claims they read a book I didn't read, but there are more important sites that you could log in through Facebook and then so someone could get into whatever those sites are as, as well. So that's, that's kind of the, the larger issue. Um, yeah, I was logged out of Facebook on uh, all my machines and, and uh, I, I just, I have not been, I don't enjoy Facebook anymore. If, I mean, it's been a long time and I sort of had it because sort of have to, but I, um, I, I rather than on my phone, it was just like, you need to re-enter your password. I'm just like, no. And, and uh, I just, deleted <laughs> the app. I just deleted the app. So now, I mean, it's still, I can access it on, on my uh, uh, desktop machine and I'm trying to make a point to check it every couple of days to see if someone's messaged me or something. But uh, and yeah, I, for, I use this as an opportunity just to say, nope, I'm, I'm done. Yeah. So, yeah. Which I'm sure a lot of people are going to do. And just for clarity, that's how you find out if you were one of the people involved in this. Right. And apparently I was not because my accounts, in fact, it's true for my wife as well. Neither of us had to re-log in. We've just continued to use yep, uh, same here. Facebook across all then, devices. What if you had two-factor authentication? How did that affect this? I think that it was probably still compromised. They may not be able to get into your Facebook itself, but I'm not right. really sure. Yeah, I think once you have but, the token, I think you're just in. Yeah. yeah. So they they could become you, and if you're logged in, and that's probably why they logged everybody out, then they could become you on those other sites. Hmm. Interesting. It's funny because one of the things that I find myself doing whenever I create a new account on some random service that happens to offer Facebook and other – I mean, you can use Facebook login. You can use Google login. You can use whatever different. Yeah, I never do. If If there's the option to set up – its own unique username, email address, and password. Yeah. I much prefer that. That's really the way I've, to do it. I've got LastPass. You know, I don't have to worry about recording it or you know, remembering all these silly passwords. I can make the passwords nice and long and strong. And that way I'm not dependent on this single point of failure, um, which, you know, whatever, whichever service that might be. Now, so, you know, so I thought a lot about this because, you know, I, last time I tried to set up a whole new thing, um, I had the login problem. I had it was setting up a whole new website with, you know, people had to log in and I had to go with, okay, do I create my own login? Do I use Facebook? There's Twitter, there's Google. And I actually did go and use all of those. Um, so I gave me some firsthand experience with the, you know, coding for it. Um, I think now the way things are, I would go the other way. I would not use any of them and I would set up my own. Right. Um, but here's a trend. I think, there's a site I signed up for, a local, a new local newspaper here in Denver. Actually, I should talk about that in some future episode. But the um, they set up a passwordless uh, login, and the way that works is it's two factor, but without the password, just <laughs> one factor basically. You go to log log in, and it will send you a like a passcode, one time use via email or maybe text messaging. So I go to log in and I say, here's my email address. That's my ID. And it says, great, you are a member. Uh, a new code has just been sent. And I get an email and there's a code. I put that in the password field and now I'm logged in. And that's it. I never have a password. There's no password to store, nothing. It's interesting. I think uh, I've run into this before. It's 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 been around for at least a few months. I think it's medium.com, if I'm not mistaken. But one of the sites that I log into does the same thing. You, When you log in, you give them your email address. They send you something that you then have to echo back to them. And it's two-factor authentication without the first factor, like you said. Um, in a way, it's really two-factor authentication because the first factor is your email address. The second factor is your ability to um, respond to that email address. But the, um, for me, it's just annoying. And it's annoying in the sense that email isn't always instant. 
and they don't give you the option of using, you know, uh, an ins- anything other than email as the approach to doing it. So and at the very least you have to change tabs, if not programs to get that email and grab right. that token. Right. You know, yeah, it sounds like a pain. I like, I like the idea of passwordless. I really do. There's a couple of other approaches that folks are using where you actually install an app on your phone. Mm-hmm. And when you try to log in on your PC, it simply says, hey, over on your phone, was that you? And you say yes or no. And you're done because you were yeah. able to respond to the correct device. Right. I've had that happen on uh, Google accounts. It's just like all you have to do is just open the Google app on your phone and that's it. And it's right. happy. Yeah. Yep. That to me is a, is a pretty, a, a pretty nice way of, of solving a similar problem. And I'm sure that they have, you know, backup, sorry, I lost my phone kinds of things, or I don't have access to that email anymore or whatever. But the, you know, the, the primary means of, of getting through um, is actually pretty smooth and doesn't involve a password. Yeah, I think a combination of those is probably the way to go. Like, So you have either the, the app for that site or service, or you have like one of these authenticator apps, you know, that there's several out there, like Google Authenticator, and there's competitors too. And you get a, oh, to log on, either go to one of these apps and it has a little thing. Hey, did you just try to log on on a MacBook Pro in Colorado? And you're like, yes. And then instantly you're on. But you could also press a button to say, email me a code or text message me a code um, and maybe a few extreme backups if you know that, that goes wrong. And you could just go down the list. All of those would share that you, know, they, you don't need a password. There's no password to be stolen, lost, uh, you know, uh, hacked, <laughs> anything, which certainly uh, does take care of a lot of problems. I think it's a really good way to go for sites that are not critical right which are so many so many sites and it you know just the, it's like oh really there's going to be a whole password sitting out there with my email address on your server for this thing and it's just like, some stupid list you know thing or entertainment site or whatever it's like ugh, it would be so much better if it was passwordless like this this newspaper site I mean, I have not had to re-log in yet. I, I had to log in, use this process the first time about a month ago on my desktop, and then I had to do the same thing on my laptop. And since then, I haven't had to do the process again. So the cookie that's set is still there. And hey, if it's if it's once a month, I'm fine with it. Mm-hmm. I never, I never, I'm never in a. I need to read the news right now. It's like I could wait two minutes. It, it and it actually has been fast. It has been seconds that I've gotten the email. But if it was like two minutes to get the email, right. it's fine. It's just a news site. I could the, the delay. The delay I suffer from is the fact that I read my um, uh, my email to my domains through Gmail, mm. which means Gmail is periodically picking up the email from my server, and periodically isn't under my control. So they may send the email very quickly, ah. but it kind of up to Gmail to go out and, and actually show it to me. If I'm in a hurry, yeah, I can connect up to my server and go look at the logs and, you know, grab the mail directly that way. But it's still, it's a pain. It's a barrier. It's a delay. There, there is a refresh button on Gmail, but they don't let you use it too often. Exactly. Yeah. They, they, and in fact, they don't document that it has anything to do with remote email pickup, even though it does. Yeah. Um, for the longest time, they said, explicitly that it doesn't and that kind of went away and experience shows that you know most of the time yeah you hit refresh and and it goes out and checks for mail but like you said not if it does it too soon if you do it too quickly i had that experience actually just this afternoon someone sent me an email that i wanted to look at right away and uh, i was hitting refresh and refresh and refresh and refresh and of course nothing was happening you know the i think that a, a great system would be when you sign up you sign up with your email address as your id and you give them your text message number, and then there's no password. And when you want to log in, you know, most of the time you're logged in automatically. The cookie's there. But then when you want to log in on a new computer, you give them your email address as your ID, and they then send a text message to the phone number they have on file. Sure. So it's not the kind of thing where like somebody trying to break into your account is already halfway there because they, they're just using your email address and maybe they can break into your email server. It's like they wouldn't even know what your text message phone number would be. So they could guess your email address, but the 
passcode is going somewhere else right. entirely. And then the text message stuff is usually very fast. So yes. Yes. It, it would, and on another device a lot of times too, if it's a computer to phone, which would be nice. So anyway, well, good. We've solved the problem. <laughs> if only Facebook would listen to us. <laughs> I know. Uh, Facebook would be would be an ideal place to do this, considering you know they have the mobile app. They already do two factor authentication in their mobile app, right? You know, so they already have basically more than this set up. And I would love the option to be able to go into Facebook and maybe say, "No password. I want no password option." Um, and you kill my password. There is no way to log in to Facebook unless using basically the second factor to get in. Right. Um, and then that right. would be cool. Then every time they say, oh, Facebook passwords were stolen, I'm like, well, can't steal mine. I don't have one. <laughs> cool. So I think at some point in this discussion, we have to say that the buzzword, which is open off. So that's, or OAuth, if you prefer, that's the technology that's involved with this, oh, that you can use yeah, that Facebook or Twitter or something like that to log in to a site that is not Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Yep. In the nyan nyan nyan, I told you so department. <laughs> Follow-up. Yes. <laughs> it's going to cause an argument between me and Randy, I know. Uh, yeah. Functional Apple One computer sells for $375,000 at auction. We discussed this uh, a few weeks ago in episode 39. And I said it would go for three hundred fifty, and Randy said a lot more than that. No, I said a lot more than three hundred. <laughs> a lot more than three. That's when you said three fifty. Mm-hmm. Right, and you came back with three hundred fifty-one. Yep. And then that's when I learned we were playing by prices right rules. Anyway. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, functional Apple One sold for three seventy-five. Um, yeah. So, and it turns out I, I did know the person who uh, was auctioning that one off. I said I knew a couple of people with one. Now I knew I know one fewer. Because <laughs> oh, no kidding. <laughs> do, you know, do we know who bought it? Now? I don't know who yeah. bought it. No, no. Okay. But you do, know, you do know somebody that has $375,000. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Minus auction fees. My, yeah, minus yeah. auction fees. Sure. Anyway, that's all. Apple one. Yay. Cool. So we've got a, a, a plan to fix the web. Is that right, Randy? Well, sort of. Tim Berners-Lee is the guy who invented the web in the first place, and he's unhappy about how big companies have kind of grabbed control, if you will. Places like, or or sites like what we've just been talking about, Facebook and Google and, and other big companies. So he wants to come up with a radical new plan to upend the World Wide Web with his new uh Initiative, I guess you could call it, interrupt. So I guess that's short for interrupt, and hey, the dot-com was available, so he grabbed it. And I don't know if I want to you know, dig into this really deep, but I just think it's interesting that uh, the guy who invented the web isn't happy with it and is trying to democratize it a little more. Is there, like, can you, is there any high level that you can share about exactly how he goes about democratizing this mess? Well, I will link to the article that clued me in, in exclusive at Fast Company. And uh, he says the intent is world domination. And let's that see. That always works out well. Yeah. Everybody gets that done. Gonna say, that sounds like the opposite of what you were just saying. You were trying <laughs> right. to accomplish. Well, he's taking a sabbatical from MIT to work on it full time. And if all goes as planned, Interrupt will be too solid what Netscape once was for many first-time users of the web, which sounds pretty mysterious to me. slow, crashy mess? An easy (laughs) way in. (laughs) And I'm I'm skimming the article because I I read this several days ago, and I'm not remembering the details, but uh, uh, you guys... I mean, I certainly understand the problem that he's trying to solve, and it's not... You know, various, you know, the people that that come to me with questions and issues, they have various views on the large companies. 
the folks of us down at the technology level definitely have our frustrations with people like Google because they try to set standards by not following the standards process, right? If you take a look at at their initiatives like AMP, um, you know, it's one of those cases where it's a nice website you got there. It sure would be a shame if it fell in the search rankings because you didn't support this new technology we think is important. And that's kind of how they're arm twisting and how they're, you know, molding the web in the way they want to see it molded without following all the standards and protocols that have been put in place to do exactly that. So that's a very frustrating, frustrating. And and I think one of the things that that really scares him is, you know, Google has your calendar. Google has your contact list. It knows where you are because of your GPS and your phone. And it knows this and knows that. And this, I think his idea is to put things like the to-do list, the calendar, the address book, all in this other app that you specifically and explicitly own your data. So I, I think that's the idea is not to give a big corporation so much information that they can cross-reference. So, and, so and much information that they send someone to follow you around and read ads to you all day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But but so it sounds like he's replacing a large entity that holds all of your data with, with another large, large entity that holds all of yeah. your data but promises not to be evil. Yeah, we promise <laughs> that we're we won't before. be evil. Well, it could, be, could be decentralized, right? I mean, yeah. it could be kind of like, you know, I, you know, I see that as an idea of like having these uh, maybe a, a cloud service that doesn't belong to a company and you can kind of create you could create your own instance of it, maybe. Like or it's, it's encrypted source. and they can't look at it. Well, yeah. Encrypt, so, encrypted, decentralized. As we've seen, though, with the features, that, with, with the companies that we're using, the Facebooks and the Googles, people, they talk a lot about they want their privacy. They want the goodness. They want to be able to control their data. And yet they vote with their feet. They use Facebook. They use Google. And why? Because these companies provide feature sets and relationships that, that all the other, you know, more private um, uh, companies, you know, companies that, that may legitimately give you more privacy don't have the, the resources to offer. Take a look at um, uh, what's that Twitter alternative right now that everybody's Mastodon. Mastodon, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, Mastodon's great. It's decentralized. It's not that difficult to use. It's a lot like Twitter and nobody's using it. Why? Because it's not quite as easy as Twitter and everybody's already on Twitter and Twitter already has all your information. It seems like if that's the path that he's heading, there's some real world implications that he's not really factoring in. People want what they want. They want the features, not the privacy. Yeah, but the, I think the difference is if you're just talking about the the suite of cloud apps that everybody now has, you know, the calendar notes, reminders, uh, you know, contacts, all that stuff. If you just talk about those, they don't have to be connected. Like the problem with Mastodon or any Facebook alternative is no, your friends aren't there. So you can't go to it. You'll just be by yourself. But for the things that are like just your cloud, basically, um, you can't, you can be by yourself. You don't need to be with other people, right? You can. Sure it's, you do. It, it's, sure you yeah. do. Why? Take, take calendar. Take the calendar. Okay. Right? I've got go. five shared calendars on Google. Yeah. Will this new thing allow me to share my calendar? Yes. Why not? Into Why not? Google? Into it, Google, into what it's explicitly competing against. Well, no, but they don't have to because... No, but if they, if they want me to use it, they yeah. have to. Well, no, but here's the thing with a calendar, uh, using a shared calendar as an example, I, I could, I have, you know, uh, iCloud, a uh, calendar on iCloud. I, I can share that with you, you know? Um, only because I happen to have a Mac. No, no, only because it, they're both using a standard. They're using the the I you know what ICS or whatever the calendar standard is. Right. That's but why, your, you can you for example? Yeah. I actually don't know this. Can you share a calendar in such a way yeah. that I can open up Google's calendar and see your calendar live? I'm I think so. Not maybe not the if you're talking the web app, but if you're yes. talking the web anyway, then you could simply open up another web page and see mine, but certainly well, like it's not the same calendar then it's but, not intermixed with mine. I but, can't see the conflicts. 
Well, okay. So uh, take it on the on the iPhone, for instance. The iPhone, which I don't I, have, right? But <laughs> but I assume Android's got something like this, right? But I could go into the into the calendar app, and I could add an account, and I could add an iCloud account. I can add an Exchange account, and I could add uh, a Google account, and a few others, uh, a, few, a few that are not even that are more standardized than that, and. Just because I'm on an iPhone, I'm using Apple's calendar app doesn't mean I have to use Apple's iCloud calendar. I could go and subscribe to another calendar service, including whatever this new thing is. I could, you know, it would become some sort of standard or maybe use the current calendar standard, which Apple didn't invent. They're just buying into the standard. And the different only difference would be is instead of the calendar being stored on an Apple server or a Google server, it's stored maybe on my server, maybe on a friend's server, maybe on some web host server that I'm, you know, somehow, you know, decided to put my calendar there anywhere I want. But the standard means that anybody with a calendar app that uses that standard can now subscribe to that calendar. And okay, let's look at it a different way then. Okay. Um, you share your calendar with me. Yeah. I run Google services. Mm-hmm. You've been trying very hard to keep your information out of Google's hands. And by yeah. sharing it with me, you just gave it to Google. Yeah, but I don't see any way around that because if I'm sharing it with you, then I'm sharing it with you. Anything that you want to do with it, whether that's share it with Google or not, but Google doesn't own it. Like if Google servers mm-hmm. go down, my calendar doesn't go down. My sure, but that, I don't think that's the problem he's trying to solve. He's trying to solve the privacy problem. Oh, uh, yeah. I think it's privacy may be a part of it, but I think data ownership and re- relying on another service and saying, well, I'm, I now have to see these Google ads because my calendar is on, you know, on Google and that's part of the price I pay going to the calendar app on the web. Um, you know, same with Gmail. I have to see those Gmail ads, but, you know, if you go with another, uh, G, uh, email is actually an excellent example. Email definitely has a standard, right? You know, the IMAP standard. And I could right now create a server that used IMAP and anybody with any standard email app on a PC, a Mac, uh, Android, or iPhone could then use that as an email account. And then I could say, here's the thing about my email server, you know, privacy this and data security that, and it, and it's not Google. Um, hmm. So same thing with calendar, same thing with notes. There are already standards for these things. So it's not a leap at all to say, you can use somebody besides iCloud or Google because there are already people that are using things that are, are not those. Well, it will be interesting to see exactly what he's, what he ends up coming up with for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking here just on, uh, just on Apple's stuff. Uh, they support iCloud, of course, exchange. That's another one, right? Completely separate from Google, Google, Yahoo is also another one, of course, not one I would start with nowadays. Um, right. And you know, and they have AOL, but I don't know if AOL has anything besides just email. Right. They probably have email and contacts. Whereas, like, I turned I turned my phone off for the podcast so it wouldn't go off. But otherwise, I don't think Android actually supports iCloud. It could be wrong. But yeah, I don't go- think I can add an iCloud account. My Google accounts. The options are mail, contacts, calendars, and notes. So all four of those things are using either a standard format or a, you know, in case of mail, Google has kind of its own open standard. They say, hey, anybody wants to access Gmail stuff, you know, this is how you do it. And it's kind of like IMAP from what I understand. Um, But so this would just be another one. There'd be the, you know, Tim's uh, standard and, you know, Apple would add it to its apps and presumably, Microsoft would add it to its apps and you'd be able to. And ultimately what's going to be, what's going to cause the average consumer to choose this over Google or Apple or all the things that are pre-installed on the device they just bought. It'll be people who think Google is evil. Right. But those are the people that are using Apple. Well, those are the people who are using Mastodon and, and the hard to use systems that now that that's a that's a very very small percentage right exactly that's exactly what i'm thinking yeah and so the but there are people who are uncomfortable with google right but they Mm -hmm. use it anyway um i just i'd like to know how what it is that makes things compelling for them to switch and i'm just not i don't know i mean when i set up my uh 
father-in-law's email you know accounts years and years and years ago i think i you know went with one of these big ones but if it was just as easy for me to go and just click this system and then there's an email account a calendar account notes and and all that and it's all free and and I and I knew there wasn't going to be any ads with it. I knew there wasn't, you know, wasn't going to cost anything and or whatever. Then I would easily do that, you know. Absolutely. And then they would know. They wouldn't care, you know. They what they, that it wasn't they, as it is. I think it's Yahoo. Is this is so long ago? It's like 15 years ago. I think it's Yahoo. And I'm pretty sure if you asked him where who's his email service provider, his answer would not be Yahoo. His answer he would be he didn't know, and uh, you know so. I, it could be used by a lot. It has to start with the people like Kevin saying that are, you know, True. It, that's who it True. starts with. Kind of a, in, a, is, in a lot of ways, it reminds me of DuckDuckGo. Yeah. In the sense that, you know, DuckDuckGo's big selling point, I mean, they have ads and so forth, but their big selling point is privacy. Um, same thing for ProtonMail. Uh, their big thing is privacy. It's free and you can use it and it'll encrypt your mail and everything's in Switzerland. So nobody's going to you know, look at it. I don't, I mean, I, I, there's a percentage of people that use those services. Absolutely. But it's not a percentage that seems to be growing and it's not a percentage that seems to be getting a lot of traction. So I don't know. Well, I, how about this? How about if like, so the idea being you're, you're with Google for all your services and then Google decides to make a change. Um, actually, that there, isn't there a story this week about mm-hmm. Google charging for you know a certain something for their uh, Google Drive? Um, you know, the Google amount, One, yeah, yeah, Google One, and then people saying that uh, you know, well, they haven't actually increased Gmail space in a long time. It's clear that they've stopped doing that, and now they're going to want some people to buy into it and all that. So Google could change the rules and say now to get our stuff for free. You need to do this. You know, maybe they change the rules and say, hey, look, Gmail is supposed to be ad-based, ad but a lot of people just get their email through their app and they never see any ads. That's over. Either you pay for it or you look at the ads. You know, they could do all sorts of things. But with a decentralized thing that actually has a set of rules and, you know, I'd assume there's some sort of, you know, oversight on it, nobody could decide, you know, that, everything's going to change and people have to pay up or something like that. It would, you know, there'd be some sort of guarantee. This this seems somewhat, um, I'll just say optimistic. I mean, Gmail has rules. This new place will have rules. The rules can change. The barrier to how those rules get, that's changed is different Sure. in Google. You know, Google has an internal process. They have marketing considerations. They have whatever considerations this new setup would have other considerations, you know, PR and, and whatever considerations rules can change. Things can change. The, 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 the big selling point that I'm hearing that we want people to buy into is that we're not going to be evil really forever. And I think, People like me <laughs> are a little bit too burned by that having been promised in the past and it not panning out. Well, well, I doubt it would actually even get off the ground. So, but it is a nice what? discussion anyway. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Time will tell. Yep. Well, in more frivolous things, mm. well, I guess it's not frivolous if you're the one getting hit by a car. Um, <laughs> the so I, you may remember I was in Holland a few months ago, uh, the Netherlands, and one of the things that's very, very different about the country is that there are bicycles absolutely everywhere. Um, I, <laughs> I rented a car and would drive around, and, and my cousin and her husband, who would, would ride with me, were always very concerned, extremely concerned, that I wasn't noticing bicycles, that I needed to be extra careful about bicycles and so forth. Um, what caught my eye, and I did not hit one, uh, got close once, but that was it. The, um, uh, what caught my eye was a news report on NPR not that long ago. Netherlands proposes legislation to ban use of phones on bicycles. So what, in the United States, we have a problem with people using cell phones while they're driving. They're down looking at their, at their text messages or whatever. I had no idea you could be coordinated enough to do that on a bicycle. <laughs> um, oh, I've maybe, seen it. I've maybe seen not it. you, but others, yes. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, it just cracks me up that that's a thing. And when you think about it, given the number of bicycles that are on the road out there, yeah, and, and Holland is a fairly technologically advanced country. It's definitely, you know, one of the first world country when it comes to tech. So there's a lot of people with phones and devices, but it just cracked me up that this is something that they had to, uh, to be concerned about. Yeah, and I've seen people do it. I, I think there's a little bit of a, like a filter because, you know, if you're not good enough to actually just ride your bike, you know, while looking at your phone in the first place, you pretty quickly crash and only harm yourself. Yeah, it's very <laughs> Darwinistic. For yeah, it's a, so, but I have seen people, I mean, and it's much more rare than in a car. A car, I can't go anywhere without, if I want to look for it, I will see it every time, yes. even though it is against the law in Colorado. Um, but uh, yeah, I have seen people doing it and they're usually like, I can obviously tell right away, first of all, they're much better at bike riding than I am. <laughs> you know, the, the, the type of person that's not even holding on to the, you know, the steering wheel, right? Or, you know, the, the bike handles. Handlebars. Yeah, yeah handlebars. Yeah. They're, they're just, you know, and it's like, yeah, I don't even do that. So, and they're, they're just sitting up, going along at like 25 miles per hour on the bike path while flipping through Snapchat on their phone. <laughs> and it's like pretty impressive. It's actually, it's like, whoa, look at that. But, uh. I suppose in a culture where there's much more, you know, many more people on bikes. It's very different. It really is. Um, it's, it's interesting to watch uh, here. Certainly in the Seattle area, when you see folks on bicycles, you know, they're, they've got the bicycle gear on, they've got the helmets, they've got, you know, the, all the fancy riding equipment. They're often on uh, fairly high end bicycles doing whatever um, out there. It's like, you know, yeah, grandma's on a bike lots of grandmas on a bike. I mean, they're, they're everywhere. Um, and it's just a thing. They're pedaling along for going from home to the grocery store. Um, it's, it's actually pretty cool. I mean, uh, and of course the infrastructure is there for it. They've got bike path, real bike paths and so forth. But, um, but yeah, they definitely have to cross the street sometime. And if they're looking at their phone while they're doing it, that could cause a problem. Cool. Anyway, just thought that was funny. Yeah, I, I'm sure we'll get some, you know, nanny gate or, or a nanny state type of complaints about it. So, I mean, in the U.S., it, it really makes sense because they're driving cars and doing oh, this. And you can yeah. take out a lot of people. There, you probably wouldn't kill anybody if you were doing this on your bike. Well, so it depends. It's, you it's could kill pretty, yourself if you ride yourself right. in traffic. But, but they're, they're protecting you from, them, them, from right. yourself as opposed to protecting other people from you. And to be clear, it, it definitely is illegal in the Netherlands to uh, text and drive. It's illegal to do this in your car. This was just about adding, right. adding bicycles to the list. All right. All right. What else do we have? Well, uh, Mike, um, uh, Microsoft actually, not Microsoft, Google <laughs> made an Back announcement to today. That's uh, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's something for developers now called Project Stream, and it's for games. And the idea behind Project Stream is that you can stream video games. Now, we already have that, and it's been really popular, but there's a big difference. Uh, right now, when you talk about game streaming, what you're talking about is watching somebody else play a game. You know, you use a system like Twitch or something like that. Somebody's actually playing the game on their computer or on an Xbox or something, and the resulting video of them playing is then being streamed live. So you're kind of a spectator in watching them play. What Google's talking about, Project Stream, is actually playing over streaming. So the computer that is actually running the game is somewhere else, say at the game developer's server farm, and you are at home, and you've got a controller, and you have a screen, uh, and you, the actual gameplay is taking place far away. The uh, the interesting thing about that, of course, it's it it means that for some of these really advanced games that take like the latest processors and graphics cards or the latest game consoles and stuff, you no longer need that. You could you know the all the hardware is somewhere else, uh, so the games could be really intense and have amazing graphics and all of that. All you need is a really 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 good connection because. Uh, it's not good enough just to have like a second delay in streaming the video back to you. You have to be able to, you know, hit the buttons on the controller 
and it the game to react instantly. And apparently, Google sees a future where that is true, maybe using their own systems, I'm thinking. And, um, and it's interesting because, you know, you think, where is the processor, right? And originally, processors were always in some central computer, and you were at a terminal, you know, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And then we got personal computers, and those processors came into our houses. And then certainly with video games, the processors were actually on the, the game consoles. And then we started to get away from that, you know, recently with cloud services and cloud apps where you're actually doing something, but the actual processor that's actually performing the tasks is remote and your computer or your phone is actually acting as a terminal to this, you know, remote uh, computer. And now the suggestion is that maybe games, the future games might be there. Um, which is really interesting because processors now are amazing. The ones in computers, the ones in phones now, the new the new ones on the latest iPhone and Galaxy are just like so powerful, um, and they do you know great for gaming. But you know, Google saying, well, maybe the future isn't that. Maybe the future is that game processors and graphics should jump way far ahead of that, and then you just have a terminal that basically streams your actions and the the resulting video. The, uh, you nailed the, uh, what's important here is the speed of the internet connection. Yeah. Latency is just yeah. going to kill you. I mean, that, that's, that's something that, you know, when I press a mouse button, um, I want that to take, that action to take effective immediately. I mean, I want it to be happening before I let go of the mouse button. And um, that's going to be difficult to do across an internet connection. It Leo is. is not. Leo is not a fan of mouse up actions, apparently. <laughs> apparently not. Yes. 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 No, I well, want the monster, I, monsters to die on mouse down. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, but you know, like the game you play in world of Warcraft. Yeah. I mean, there's already a lot of latency issues that have been solved because you're, you are actually playing in real time. And, and right. And but they're solving it. They're, they're solving it by doing the, the processing on my computer, right? That's part of what I find incredibly elegant about the design of these massively multiplayer games is that they've done a, a very interesting job of balancing how much happens on the PC to make it feel like things are happening in real time and then still sharing data across what could be a potentially quite slow internet connection. Right. And, and I think some, maybe not so much in World of Warcraft, but like something, you know, a, more of a combat, first-person combat game where you're actually shooting at, you know, other players and the latency does have to be really low already. Right. And it's a whole different type of connection. You know, I, I know from my experience working in that world a little bit, you know, there's TCP IP connections, you know, internet, you know, okay, give me this you right. know, image or give me this page. And you know, the server's like, I'll get back to you in a millisecond here. And then UDP, right. Which is, you know, more of a, you know, it's a fast, quick little packets back and forth kind of thing. Um, and if this is Google, and Google already has this these networks in place, right, where they're providing uh, bandwidth to certain cities, you know, I'm wondering if it's tied into that. And they're basically by by starting this project, you know, they're basically saying we're going to figure out a way to solve that, or maybe they already have, yep. and it's going to be a better experience. I mean, you think about the amazing graphics they could be in games if they knew that everybody had a top of the line. GPU. Matter of fact, not even a top-of-line GPU, but maybe even a whole GPU array, right? Like right. If, you didn't, if you didn't even have to worry about it, they could spec or just out if they, knew, if they knew everyone had the same one, then you could yeah. optimize for that one machine. Well, yeah, and you don't need to do that if you're streaming. Right. If you're streaming, nobody has to have any of that. All you need to do is get the video and send the clicks. First of all, a couple of comments. First of all, I was doing this in 1989 when I was playing NetHack on a Linux box. <laughs> that was streaming gaming. Yeah, was, you're right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, putting on my my archivist amateur computer historian hat, this continues to move games in a direction that I don't like because as as a future historians uh, or or archivists or just people who want to play old games. Uh, it's gonna. This is gonna hurt them, and hurt us all in the future as we move away from actually having code on our own machines. Mm. Um, even say, say you start playing World of Warcraft on on 
Google Stream, which is confusingly similar to Steam, by the way, um, uh-huh. another game platform. So you're, you're playing that game on there, and then uh, they decide to upgrade it or take away your favorite version or, uh, oops, they, they lost all your save files or whatever. If, if the, the less that's going on on your machine, the less power you have. And, and uh, say they, I mean, this, this happens so many times with, uh, games that require external servers. The server goes down, you can't play the game anymore. Same thing with this. You know, you can have your favorite game and they, it's like having like an old uh, Flash game or something. Like, wow, I love playing this Flash game. Well, you know what? They took that site down, now you can't play it anymore. It can be exactly like this with uh, Google Stream. Um, you don't own it. You can't play it if they don't want you to play it. And you're certainly not going to be able to uh, uh, refer back to it two or five or 10 so, or 20 years ago. Yeah. You're not a fan of any massively multiplayer game then? Well, that's not, I don't enjoy those games. I No, it's not that I'm not a fan of them. It's just that I, I feel like... Because um, they all fall into this model. Right, right? I feel, right. yeah, I, feel, I just feel like we're moving more in that direction, even when not necessary. Say, say Google, Google Stream has some version of Pac-Man or something. Doesn't require uh, really a server, doesn't... Re- it's not a game that requires internet, you know, massively multiplayer or anything. And yet you won't have it on your machine and they can take that version away and then it's gone. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a live real experience, yeah. you know, and archiving needs to be different for that. Like it needs to be archived, like a live real experience. Like if you go to a concert and your job is to archive that concert, you record it on video. Right. And that's the archive of it. It's not being at the concert is not the archive. It is a video representation of that. And it's the same kind of thing. If you wanted, if say there was a great game and, and I should add that they've, they've signed uh, Ubisoft for, um, you know, a triple A title. They're going to do this with, you know, so it's going to be like a, a big game with lots of graphics. And if you were an arch, you know, somebody wanted to archive that experience, then I think you would get in there and say, you know, I want to take some of these streams and save, you know, all this data. So if we wanted to look back and see what this game was like in version 1.0, we would have video of people playing the game. But there's no way to actually say you can go back. Just like you can't go back to a concert or a speech or whatever right. and relive it, you can only see captured can, media. Right. And But if you, don't, if you can't capture the media, then even... And that is not available to you. Telltale Games went out of business. Was it this week? Um, they shut down. Big big game studio, and uh, that was it. And anything that hasn't been captured now is gone. That they just shut it down. And in fact, some of my my archivist people on on Twitter were like reaching out, like if you work for Telltale, send us anything. Send us you know uh, source code. Send us uh, uh, profit loss reports, whatever. Because they know as soon as it's gone, it's gone. Yeah, I, I I see what you're saying, but I don't think this type of what what game these types of games are becoming, and it's not erasing the games of the past or saying we're not going to have those kinds of games. But what these types of big multiplayer games are becoming, it's not something that will be archived in. Here's the software, load it up and run it. It's here's residual media from what it was like to play it. And there'll still be apps like the ones I make that you can actually, here's the bits, you know, here's the actual software. But, you know, you won't have that with these big, massively multiplayer games or, you right. know, whatever. It'll be a different kind of thing. Um, but, our, you know, people want to archive it, should still go for it. I, I think there's, hopefully there is somebody, you know, when they launch a, a big game now, I, I would love it to hear these companies were saying, hey, launch day we're going to capture a bunch of video that's version 1.0 and every time we do a major update we're going to capture and store archives of people playing sure so that in the future people can look back and see what it was like to to play this game mm-hmm. so anyway i was looking at it more from a where is the processor kind of thing sure like processor Which is, is i just software. want to put my own spin on it yeah. and tell you that uh where's the source code that's my question yeah well <laughs> where's the binary I'll, yeah, I mean, because if you look at like a like a device, like a TV t- uh, TV device, like a Roku or Apple TV or something, I mean, you're talking about a device that costs almost nothing. Matter of fact, they build them into televisions now, yeah. right? And so, and a controller is you know twenty bucks. 
So instead of having to say, oh, I want to play this amazing game that just came out and having to buy a $500 console or a $5,000, you know, Alienware, you know, gaming PC, you already have the TV and the controller that can play it and you pay your $10 for this month and now you're here on. So anyway, that's all. So something to keep looking at, Project Steam, Stream. <laughs> <laughs> So that's probably a good place to wrap up. What are you yeah. going to be doing uh, the next week, Gary? Let's see. Well, I should mention that, uh, you know, uh, wrapping up my course sale, um, you know, my Mojave course is out and we had a link last week to it. Uh, so that ends on Friday. And, um, and yeah, just, uh, just catching up with lots of stuff now that that course is out and I can get on to some other things. All right. Leo. I am, well, this week is all about catching up from being on the coast last week, and then next week I'm traveling, uh, so I'm trying to get ahead for that. So it's basically more of the same old stuff, just compressed in time. So you're recovering from your travel so you can travel? Pretty much, yeah. Yep. Kevin, how about you? I got nothing. <laughs> nothing? <laughs> nope. Well, I'm going to be doing some travel too, and... Uh, I'm going to be going to a and setting up a secret lair. Ooh. Ooh. And we'll be more about that in the next episode. Hmm. <laughs> cool. All righty. So the show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh43. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at the teh podcast. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll see you again here next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.